from KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast... Rapper Meek Mill gets sentenced to two to four years in prison for a probation violation and becomes the face of the call for reform. Here from all sides of this controversial case. It's almost as if you are still incarcerated. Meek Mill is the wrong person to use as the poster child. Three ways advocates say Pennsylvania's system needs to change. She started a firestorm online when taking on street harassment. You're not supposed to know that you're beautiful. You're not supposed to know that you're smart. One of Philadelphia's most influential is using social media to agitate, activate, and advocate. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is a case of Robert Rameek Williams, a.k.a. Meek Mill, a Philadelphia-born rapper who's making national headlines as the poster child for probation and parole reform. He was sentenced to two to four years in prison for a technical violation of his probation stemming from a decade-old drug and gun possession conviction. His incarceration sparked massive protests and the hashtag Free Meek Mill and Justice for Meek. I don't think he should be unfairly treated by this court system. Just let him go. Hundreds attended a rally, including big names like rapper Rick Ross and Dr. J. Rapper Jay-Z wrote a New York Times op-ed defending Mill. Rapper's lawyers have accused the judge of bias, and Mill is scheduled to have a bail hearing this week. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Nisa Taylor, criminal justice policy counsel for the ACLU of Pennsylvania, J. John Dye Harrell, co-founder of the Center for Returning Citizens, and finally, Victor Fiorello, a senior reporter for Philadelphia Magazine who penned an article titled, Meek Mill got exactly what he deserved. There was a caveat there that we will talk about. So welcome to Flashpoint. Thank, Thank you. So you. Much. Wonderful. So I want to start with you, Anissa. Let's lay the foundation in the law and any statistics that you may have. Yeah, Pennsylvania has 280,000 people who are covered by probation or parole as of 2015 under court supervision. That is the fourth highest state in the nation. People who are on probation or parole, that is a direct driver of incarceration, as the Meek Mill case has just demonstrated. People have said that Meek Mill may not be the perfect example for this issue, but um, John Dye, tell me, like, what is it like being under state supervision? What do you have to do? Well, I think he is the perfect example because he's a young black male who has a lifestyle that is many times at odds with the criminal justice system. When you're on parole, your life is not your own. If you go out of state, you have to make a phone call. You're constantly attached to the system in so many different ways that it's almost as if you are still incarcerated. Now, for Mick Mills, who is wealthy and has a lifestyle that's far above the ordinary parolee, we look at him and we see a difference. But it's not really a difference. It's the same thing. And explain that for me. When you're on parole, it's almost as if you are locked up while you are free. Mass incarceration is so intense in terms of your job, your employment, reintegrating with your family, trying to live and still deal with the system. And Meek hasn't particularly done a good job of that, 
but the system is weighted against those. In Philadelphia, there's about 42,000 people on parole, and there's 261 parole officers. So what you're talking about is a case where one parole officer had 681 clients, which means you can't really supervise that. Also, judges have the authority and ability to at any time take away your parole and send you back to prison. Let's just talk about this Meek Mill case a little bit. I mean, and the reason why I made the argument that some people say he should not be the poster child for this type of reform is because he did make mistakes. And so a lot of people agree with what Victor wrote and his article, you know, lay out your opinion here. I think it's great that we're having the conversation about this. And I agree that it's a huge problem in Pennsylvania and throughout America at large. But I do think that Meek Mill is the wrong person to use as the poster child for this. You know, I wrote that article in response to seeing a lot of people that I know and respect posting things on Facebook like, this is crazy. Meek Mill just went away for two to four years for riding his dirt bike in New York. You know, in this era of fake news, this was very much fake news because that is not why he was going to jail. He was convicted in 2009 of carrying a loaded firearm in public. He was convicted on drug offenses and he was convicted of simple assault. He was sentenced to 11 to 23 months in jail, followed by probation. That probation, he has consistently violated it. I counted at least four times that he violated it. Now, you come to 2017, he gets arrested at the airport. The judge in, in the Meek Mill case says that those mere arrests can constitute a violation of the probation, which brings us to where we are today, in addition to him failing a drug so test recently. So your summary recently, here is what, based on all of this? There are plenty of people who are in jail right now, young black men who were picked up for petty crimes, who were given high bail, who can't get out of jail, who might have families at home, who are sitting in jail until trial and they can't afford to get out. These are the people we should be talking about. Let's talk about the length of time that Meek Mill was on probation. I mean, his initial sentence gave him eight years. Eight years is a long time to be on probation for something you did as a teenager, basically. And so that would leave him on probation until he was almost 30 years old. Most states put a cap on the length of time which you can serve on probation. Many states, it's five years. In Pennsylvania, the maximum amount of time you can serve is the maximum amount of time you can serve for those crimes, and that's consecutively. So it's a very, very long period of time for any human being to be on probation, especially someone who was arrested when he was 18 years old. I also think it's really important to remember one-third of Pennsylvania's prison beds are occupied by people who are there because they violated their probation or parole. There's a huge amount of money that the state is spending on violations, many of whom did not commit a new crime. Yeah, I saw some numbers of the hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent. How easy is it to violate parole, John Day? You can violate parole by simply moving and not notifying your parole officer. You can violate parole by being in the wrong place where you're not supposed to be. But in addition to the ease with which you can violate parole, let's look at his original charge. We're talking about carrying a loaded gun. We aren't talking about firing the gun. We aren't talking about assaulting anyone. And this is something that young black men do in North Philadelphia every day of the week. I'm not saying it's right, but people carry guns all the time. It's not as if he was robbing anybody, shooting anybody. He just had a loaded gun. And in the course of that arrest, he was assaulted by the police. And he's always alleged that it happened 
And that's never been considered. Yeah, and he he did some time in prison, and he's done. He's been back yes. and forth a couple of times because of parole violations. But I want to talk about Victor's caveat. While you said, "Look, Meek Mill's not the the guy that should be the poster child for this," you had an issue with the sentence as well, right? I mean, I think it's a stupid sentence for a guy like this. Um, in light of what the offenses to his probation are, um, you're. Your guess is correct that it's very easy to violate the probation and a lot of the people who violate haven't committed new crimes or certainly not serious crimes. Um, so at the end of the day, he's not violating because he was found with a gun. He's not violating because he broke into somebody's house. He's not violating for making threats against somebody. He's violating for failing a drug test. He's violating for uh, performing out of the geographic boundaries of his limitations without notifying the judge. He's, uh, you know, these are relatively small issues. So I'm all for a, a more creative sentence for the guy. I proposed something that was more about community service, which he's already um, been ordered to do. Uh, but as to, to me, putting him in jail for two to four years is just a silly, um, very old school response by the judge uh, who, who should yeah. have been able to come up with something better. Unfortunately, I do not believe that this is out of the ordinary, this type of incarceration following technical violations. Um, I previously spent many years as a public defender, and we often encountered people who were sentenced for technical violations or minor drug offenses who were on probation. And, and could then, you explain technical? Yeah, yeah so... If you're on probation and you have a new arrest, a new criminal arrest, that can become a direct violation if you are convicted of a new crime. If you have simply violated one of the many terms of your probation, which as John Dye was just talking about, can be many, if you violated one of those terms, that's called a technical violation. So you can be reincarcerated and sentenced to a new period, like two to four, for simply a technical violation. And we saw that routinely with people who had mental health issues, with people who were struggling with drug and alcohol addiction, with people who honestly were were disabled in some way. And so it became very difficult for them to meet all of these often very onerous requirements. Everybody agrees that two to four years for a technical violation is, is a bit much, right? What kind of reforms could be put in place given the spotlight that Meek Mill's situation did shine on this issue? Well, I like the idea of a cap on the amount of time. Five years makes sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense to everybody else. Um, but I do worry a little bit about this idea that when we were talking about Meek Mill, what his original crime was not being that serious. I hate to think that the idea of a guy carrying a loaded gun around in Philadelphia um, without a permit and also carrying drugs and also committing an assault during that is not a serious uh, crime. So, And the notion that, uh, as your one guest said, that a bunch of black guys in North Philly are carrying guns around right now, that this At is... This very moment. Right. As we speak. But the fact that you think that that, that is somehow a defensive Meek Mill... Uh, it just doesn't work. I think we're on very two uh, different ends of the spectrum here. It's not a defensive of McMills. It's the reality of life in North Philadelphia, West Philadelphia, Southwest. Either we're going to talk about the reality of what the streets is and the culture of the streets, or we're going to pretend we are talking about Sunday school kids. And we're not. I mean, you get caught with a loaded gun in Philadelphia. I'm happy if you go away for a good long time. You're not up to any good if you have a loaded gun in your pocket. Without a permit. Get a permit. I've heard young brothers say, I'd rather be caught with it than caught without it. Because in the streets of Philadelphia, it's dangerous. So brothers carry guns. That's just the reality. I'm not excusing it. I'm saying that's the culture and that's the reality. Meek Mills was caught up in that lifestyle and 
hip-hop glorifies that lifestyle, and Hollywood glorifies it. Jay-Z spoke out, uh, you know, in support of Meek Mill, and, and in full disclosure, his company, Rock Nation, manages Meek Mill. He believes criminal justice systems stalk people like Meek Mill, and he's a target, and that there's a lot of people doing wrong, but the fact is they are not stalked and caught every, at every turn. Walk down any street in North Philadelphia on the Temple campus. There's more drugs among the white kids there than there are in many of the black areas, but they aren't policed in the same way. There really is a systemic problem regarding racism in our criminal justice system that needs to be addressed. And I do want to point out that the judge, Janice Brinkley, is African-American. People point out the fact that this was a black judge giving him those two to four years. And so does that remove the race factor here? I don't think it's so much of a race factor. It's a, a factor of taking responsibility. There were not enough people around him giving him the proper direction and saying, Meek, this is what you have to do. I'm going to have to wrap this up. Do you think that the prominence of Meek Mill will be enough to get the type of reforms that we all agree need to happen. I think it's a good start. I think what would be even better if uh, would be if Meek Mill contributed a very large sum of money to this reform. Um, you know, he's paying his lawyers a lot of money right now. Um, I'd love to see him make a donation to either one of uh, your uh, guests' nonprofits. Yeah, once he gets out. I would definitely like to see a cap on the length of probation sentences. I would like to see shorter probation and parole sentences. I also think that we need to reconsider our laws around violation of probation. As it currently stands, you can incarcerate someone in order to, quote unquote, vindicate the authority of the court. I think we should remove that provision from our legislation and you should only be reincarcerated if you are a threat to public safety. Well, we'd never turn down money for Meek. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my idea. I think <laughs> I have to thank Victor. <laughs> I think more importantly that the city should be investing money in real mentorship for those who are on probation and parole. The city should create a department inside of the probation staffed by returning citizens who are successfully transitioning so that we can assist those who are on probation and parole to move forward. Thank you to Nisa Taylor. Thank you to Victor Fiorello. And thank you to J. John Dye Harrell for talking about this issue. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Next up, she's six feet tall with 160,000 Twitter followers. People saying, I didn't know this. I didn't know it was this bad. And once the consciousness is low, you can't go back from that. The influential Philadelphian that's shaking up their internet by confronting sexism, racism, and homophobia. is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and some of the issues that get Philly residents hot under their collar are sexism, racism, homophobia, and inequality. Feminista Jones is a UPenn-educated social worker and activist that has used social media to activate and agitate tens of thousands. She's also an author whose writing has been featured in the New York Times, Time Magazine, and more. And she was just named one of Philly Mag's most influential Philadelphians. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, it's exciting. Yeah, so I have to say, like, I was shocked mm-hmm. when I read the Philly Mag list of most mm-hmm. influential people. And I saw your name as number 25. And the name stood out to me. And I was like, 
wait, I know what Witness to Hunger is. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of different people in the social justice movement. Mm-hmm. Why do I not know this woman? Mm-hmm. So I had to reach out to you yeah. uh, after learning about your story and invite you to be a guest on Flashpoint. For those of our listeners who have never heard of you, please give them an introduction. Well, I am a hardworking, anti-poverty, anti-hunger advocate. I've been in social work for 16 years now. I'm an organizer. I'm a mom. I'm a writer, public speaker. Um, I'm someone who's really committed to like making the world a better place. And any way that I can do that, that's what I do. Yeah, and you're from New York. Went to Penn. Yes. Was away and then came back. I came back. Why, what is it about Philly that keeps you coming back? You know, it's so funny because when I was at Penn, I was just like, oh, my God, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I want to go back because you're young. You don't really know much. But um, I started doing volunteering in West Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, and got really familiar with the city outside of the campus. And I was like, this is actually a really great city. And I chose to come back here because the poverty rate is so high. Mm. And I just wanted to see, like, what I could do and try to help to, you know, the people that are here living in poverty. So, um, and it's got great Food. I've read a number of mm-hmm. articles about you. You didn't mm-hmm. want to be a gentrifier coming yeah, back here. I didn't. I looked at over 25 apartments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the neighborhoods I was in, I, they were, you know, pitched as revitalized and up and coming and hot, hot, hot. And I'm looking and I'm like, well, I've seen this happen in New York. I'm from the Bronx, you know, and I've seen people try to turn the South Bronx into Sobro. You know, so I was just like, I don't want to be that person that comes into this city knowing what's going on. And then I'm like bringing my New York money and coming and just displacing people. And so I started looking into statistics and things like that. And I was like, the eviction rates for women of color, you know, like it's just, I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable. So I started looking and I moved to North Philly. (laughs) You have literally tens of thousands of Mm -hmm. followers on social media. You have started all kinds of trouble uh, on social media. You're an author. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really funny when we talk about like the followers and stuff. And I was looking this morning, I was like, I have 160,000 followers on Twitter. And kind of, and kind of thinking about that many people watching your every move, right? Mm. Um, so Push the Button is a, a, bu- a book I wrote a while back, um, about four years ago now. It was really kind of exploring what life was like for black people that participate in BDSM lifestyle. So it started on my blog and people started demanding more. You know, over two years, I ended up writing this book that has gone over. I sold over 10,000 copies around the world. And it's really funny because I just signed a book deal with uh, Beacon Press to write a different type of book, a nonfiction book. So like, I'm excited about that too. And it's just like, what I try to tell some young folks is like, when you have a platform and you start building, you start chasing your dreams, you can use social media and other platforms to really push that. And so by me doing all that other work, you know, I had a company that was attracted to me and came and offered, you know, were offered to work with me. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I can really reach people. I can reach a lot of people really quickly. And so, like, how can I use this to make things better? And so that's really kind of what I try to do with my platform, just try to make it better. Last spring, mm-hmm. you had, you said, look, you know, when men compliment women, yes. explain this whole thing and yeah. what the reaction was on social media. So it's just, you know, just a quick background. I've done, I've done a lot of anti-street harassment work. Mm. Um, and I started this um, campaign called UOKC. Basically, it's calling on for bystander intervention. If you see someone being street harassed, just kind of intervene and ask the person if they're okay, that kind of thing. But I realized that out of that, that there was a lot of anger that some men would display when they would compliment you and you'd be like, thank you, I, I know. I challenged people jokingly. I was like, you know, piss a man off. Tell him that you agree with his compliment. I mean, it was overwhelming because everybody now had stories. They had screenshots of all these times that yes. they thanked men for compliments and and agreed with them and the men t- turned into insulting them and like berating them. And it was just this idea. It's like, you're not supposed to know that you're beautiful. You're not supposed to know that you're smart. You're supposed to wait for someone else to say it. And I was like, no, you can push back. And people are like, oh, well, that's just arrogant why can't you just say that I said thank you you know thank you you know or like sometimes thank you isn't enough you know you say thank you and they're like 
that's it. That's all you're going to say. It's like, what more do you want me to say? You know, we're expected to just fawn over the fact that someone notices us. And I'm like, nah, you know, say thank you. Say you agree and, and go on about your day. And people started doing it. And they were like, you're so right. These, they are so upset over this. And I was like, that speaks to just yeah. our, our culture. We got to work on that. Because you have such a mm-hmm. powerful social media platform. Mm-hmm. Talk about the role of that, because mm-hmm. it seems like things move a thousand Lightning times speed. faster now. Lightning speed. And I think that's probably why we're seeing now these communities that have been built online. And you see like activists and feminists and all these kind of liberating like folks coming together because they can all interact now. It's like I've met some close friends that I would have probably never met were it not for social media. And these are people that are in this justice space. So it's like we're all coming together. We're sharing notes. We're comparing. We're linking up. We're joining together in the movement. And I think that's why you're starting to see that. And so on social media, we can share these stories as they come out. And we have these wide audiences and what ends up happening is people saying I never knew this or I didn't know this I didn't know it was this bad and I think that raises the level of consciousness and once the consciousness is low you can't go back from that yeah it's like now you see all these people that you thought were your favorites have been complicit in this so now what do we do so now we have to talk about changing culture and where does that start starts with our kids yeah, and it's it's going to be tough work. It's going to be because tough we're work. having some of the most uncomfortable yeah. conversations, I th- think, mm-hmm. publicly. Yeah. about once taboo yeah. things, right? And we have to keep having those conversations because when you bring it out, and I, you know, I just always, always, always commend the ones that take the first step because yes. that's the hardest step to take. But in doing that, you open that door for everybody else to feel comfortable to come forward, and that's what we're seeing happen. So, you know, definitely got to salute all the brave people that have been coming forth with their stories. Yeah, no more mm-hmm. culture of silence. Yeah. And so um, you are, because you're considered one of the most influential Philadelphians, I have to ask <laughs> you this question. Which one do you consider to be more important or mm-hmm. effective, influence or power? Um, I think that influence is really what's important. I think leaders are the ones who can influence action, and usually it's through modeling behavior, but you can influence people to act because they really believe in what you have. Power, you know, it's one of those things that can be so corrupt, so easily corrupted, mm. and I think that it can get to your head. I don't seek power, right? I just want to be able to get people to think a little bit differently or a lot differently. I want to be able to influence them into action. Everybody take your own personal action in your life, um, but I don't need power i don't need i don't need that you're a mm-hmm. feminist yes. uh, you're also activist within social justice yes. mm-hmm. within the lgbtq yes, community yes, as well yes, yes. like you have like yes. you just have a wide yeah. reaching area and it's really interesting because here in philadelphia i think there's been over the last year or so some really great conversations about you know anti-lgbtq yes. um, discrimination mm-hmm. in certain neighborhoods and i think you're seeing a lot of younger people coming forward which always invigorates me like i'm almost 40 yeah and i see younger people in their 20s who are so committed to making things better for everyone so I do identify as queer and I identify as pansexual. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm watching these young people come and fight for their right to live. And that's like really beautiful and inspiring. So, and I, But I have to ask you yes. about the, the term pansexual. Yeah, Because I had never heard it. <laughs> I was like, wait, I, was yes. like, I need to Google this. Yeah. And I consider myself a strong mm-hmm. ally. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? The, the idea of pansexuality is you're attracted to people regardless of gender. Yeah. So it's, you know, for me, like I used to identify as bisexual, but then I realized that there's people that consider themselves non-binary and gender fluid or things like that who don't fit just this man and woman Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so for me, by being two, I was like, ah, there's a little bit more there. And I started realizing that my um, desire and sexual attraction was just to people. 
And so I could find people attractive, you know, regardless of their gender. So that's kind of what pansexual is. Mm-hmm. And I just want to go back. I know by day you're a social yeah. worker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about your work at Witness to Hunger? I just had my last day at Witnesses to Hunger uh, was yesterday. And so for the last year and a half, I worked directly with them. Um, they were once a research project on what it was like for mothers living in poverty, mm-hmm. caring for small children. And then they, after the research was done, the evaluation was done, they wanted to keep the work going. And they were located in different cities. So I was hired on to basically help them design a program. And like, what would this program look like of community activists and advocates? And so over the last year and a half, we've really worked on structuring that. And so when I left, I left a 108-page manual. This is how you do witnesses to hunger. So no more witnesses to <laughs> hunger for not, you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually, it's funny because, like I said, I've been doing this work for about 16 years, and my hope is that I can take a little bit of a break. Um, so that's what I'm about to do. But, you know, I'm the kind of person I can connect with all different types of groups and continue to do the so-called work. Um, but, again, I have the, the book that I'm writing right now, the book deal. I speak all over the country, you know, so I still write for magazines and stuff. So, you know, I, I'm falling back a little bit. If the opportunities come up where I could get involved, particularly working in the communities, I may jump back into it. And so my last question, what's Mm -hmm. your vision for yourself? I had two dreams growing up. One was to help people and one was to write books. And I've spent the last 16 years helping people. And I feel like now Mm -hmm. is the time for me to focus on my writing and that kind of thing. And so... Maybe get a cabin in the woods somewhere by a lake. I don't know. That is like a beautiful yeah. vision. So yeah. I wish you luck. Thank you so much, Feminista Jones, for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, mentoring Camden's girls. It pushed me out of my comfort zone. I'll tell you three ways a partnership with Campbell's Soup is changing lives. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and this week, it's all about creating pathways to success. Women of the Dream Incorporated is a Camden, New Jersey-based nonprofit that provides programs and services to girls and young women ages 12 to 18 in underserved communities. I'm here with CEO and founder Leslie Morris and two of her young women of the Dream, Samira Nesmith and Brianna Kalaf, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank hey. you. Hey. I'm so honored to have you here. I love the work that you do. Please tell our <laughs> listeners how you decided to get started with this. Oh, actually, it started out as a research project when I decided to um, identify about 30 black women graduates of my alma mater, Simmons College, to come together at Campbell Soup Company for a focus group just to talk about um, our own journey or pathway to success, but more importantly, what we have been doing to give back to young girls and women of, of this generation. From that, I was told, well, if you really want to reach girls and make a, a, a meaningful impact on the lives of young girls, you're going to have to start a nonprofit organization. <laughs> and said, boom. And I said, really? And, and that's, that's what I did. We based it in Camden because Camden is my primary strategic partner through Denise Morrison, who is the um, president and CEO of Campbell Soup Company. We've been in Camden now for three years providing services and programs to girls ages 12 to 18. Well, congratulations on three years. And so um, you have Samira here. What types of things have you done with Women of the Dream? I have been to Washington, D.C., and I have been to Campbell Soup meetings and STEAM conference. And so what has that been like for you? It has been amazing 
powerful and a lot of learning. Brianna, you got a chance to go to Boston. We visited Miss Leslie's um, alma mater, Simmons College, and um, I really enjoyed myself. Um, I met the president, Helen Jenin. We had dinner. We had fun. Um, I visited the dorms and spoke in front of 200 professors, and it pushed me out of my comfort zone. I remember being a shy young girl. Talk about why you think mentorship is so important and why this is such a big part of Women of the Dream. When I was growing up, we didn't have formal mentoring programs. We had mentors from the community, just adults who cared about us, provided guidance and advice, and it, and it, and it was still quite quite effective. It was powerful. Um, Today, kids need a lot more formal programs to kind of guide them through some of the stressors and challenges that they're faced with on a daily basis. So we have mentoring programs targeted to 7th and 8th grade girls in three schools now in Camden. We have over 65 girls involved in our mentoring program. I thought I had it tough when I was growing up, but these girls today are faced with obstacles that were just unheard of when I was, was their age. So it really provides a safe space for them to talk about their concerns. And we discuss everything from family relationships to domestic violence. We actually meet with them once a week. Then we also have the socially and culturally relevant opportunities for them, such as the trip to Boston, the trip to the African-American Museum. So we have, uh, and just a couple of weeks ago, we had 42 girls over here in, at Temple University to um, a teen empowerment program. It was a full day sponsored by Sisters Giving Back, which is another nonprofit organization. So we also partner with a number of organizations with similar missions. Just the travel, do you see your peers doing stuff like this? Are you bringing back what you learned? I have a younger sister that's also in the program, so I have encouraged her. My friends know it's a lot of disadvantaged girls that really need like this program to help them. For us to be and from Camden and stuff like that, we didn't we haven't learned a lot. <laughs> but you know, when I was in school, we learned etiquette in home economic classes. There's no, but home there are no now. there are no home economic mm-hmm. classes anymore. You know, in the school curriculum, so the girls learn how to walk. They learn how to shake hands. They learn how to dress for different occasions. And you know, even healthy eating. And re- healthy eating, absolutely. We had the uh, Healthy Choices program, how to shop at a grocery store. Um, the girls went to the Croc Center, and they were able to work out. Um, because it's one thing to learn healthy eating, but then you have to also exercise. It's, it's pretty holistic in its approach. So you get it all. And so what mm-hmm. are your visions for yourselves, ladies? Well, my vision for myself is to become a young and successful African-American woman to become an engineer. I want to become a registered nurse. What's the future of Women of the Dream? We're only three years old, so we're still kind of considered a startup. So, you know, we hope to have a full staff because um, ultimately I would like to see Women of the Dream become a national organization where we have satellites set up in cities across the country, kind of similar to a Big Brothers, Big Sisters, United Way. Camden will always be our base, but to really take it across the state and then ultimately uh, national. That's my vision for Women of the Dream. Well, I know if anybody can do it, Leslie, you can. Because we didn't mention the fact that Leslie is very well connected, very much driven, Mm -hmm. and um, uses a lot of that energy Mm -hmm. to to pour into these young women. So I want to say thank you Mm -hmm. to Leslie Morris, thank you to Samira, and thank you to Brianna for coming into the KYW studios Mm -hmm. and for appearing on Flashpoint. Thank Thank you. you. Thank Thank you for having us. 
That's it for Flashpoint, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As country singer and actress Dolly Parton once said, if your actions create a legacy that inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are an excellent leader. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.